Welcome to the Frankly Speaking podcast, the podcast on European and world affairs. My name is Tom van Vinkt and I am the manager for the State of Europe program at Friends of Europe and I will be your host for this episode. Today we will delve into our first episode ever on something important at the heart of Friends of Europe's mission, the renewed social contract. If you follow our events and articles, I trust you will be familiar with the concept. In case you don't, it is time you do. Everything is available on our webpage. This episode is the first of a series where we will unpack elements shaping today's social contract. In other words, why we think some things no longer work and what we think we, as a society, can do to improve them. The way all roads lead to Rome, all discussions on the social contract this year will lead us to the State of Europe, Friends of Europe's flagship high-level roundtable in November 2023, where we will discuss 10 policy choices for Europe ahead of the spring 2024 elections. I am thrilled today to welcome Eche Temelkuran, who will be our guest for today. Eche, welcome. How are you? Hi, Tom. Uh, I'm a bit sickish, but I'm healthy enough to talk about the new social contract. <laughs> it's delightful to have you with us, Eche. And uh, Eche, you need no introduction, really, but let me give it a go nonetheless. Uh, you are a novelist, a political thinker. You were published in The Guardian, The New Statesman, The New Left Review, Le Monde Diplomatique, Der Spiegel, The New York Times and Berliner Zeitung. Your novel, Women Who Blow On Nuts, won a Pen Translates Award and sold over 120,000 copies in Turkey. You were twice named Turkey's most read women columnist. You're an international reference on all matters relating to democracy, fascism, and the social contract. In your book, How to Lose a Country, you very efficiently and yet so poetically laid out the rise of authoritarianism in Turkey and the West. And then you moved on to Together and 10 Choices for a Better Now, which is an incredibly uplifting outlook onto the future and what we can do to help ourselves. And indeed, you've been touring Europe and the world, warning all of us of the dangers of fascism and the erosion of democratic values in your role as Cassandra. Eche, if it's all right with you, let's jump right in with our first uh, question for you today. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you've cultivated your unique voice and, and who is Cassandra? Where does she come from and, and what does she do? <laughs> Um, like it's the most difficult question, this one. Um, I was thinking uh, about this question earlier. Uh, what am I doing? How should I define myself? <laughs> Because it's constantly changing. I think I'm a flowy uh, persona in that sense. And at the bottom, I think we can say that I'm a distracted poet, <laughs> distracted by politics very easily. And also I'm coming from Turkey. It's a country that doesn't allow you to engage in anything but itself. So I think politics has been an integral of my part, uh, life since from childhood, even because I come from a political family. Um, and, and then I did journalism for 30 years, almost 30 years. Uh, on the 29th year, actually, I was fired. And then on... I didn't do real journalism, so to speak. I was a columnist for the last uh, 20 years of those 29 years. Um, and yeah, uh, since 2000, let's see, 16, uh, since I left Turkey, I started writing in English. And my last books, uh, How to Lose a Country and Together, were originally written in English. Otherwise, I'm writing poetry and uh, novels, but, you know, very recently I even uh, have written um, opera libretto, uh, which is to be 
performed in Amsterdam on my 50th birthday, 22nd of July. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, to anyone who listens to us, please do make sure that you uh, wish Etche a happy birthday on the 22nd of July, because <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be an important date. Um, delving into the, the topic of this podcast, and thank you so much for your introduction, um, understanding a social contract, this is where I'm really going to be asking your, your, your thoughts, and there's no filter, understanding a social contract as, as an agreement amongst members of society, you know, the, the state, the private sector, institutions, civil society and citizens, and that there are as many applications of such a contract as there are countries. Tell us about your ideal social contract and what societies in Europe or elsewhere, if any, are the closest to your ideal and, and why that is? First of all, this um, social contract and even more so uh, the option of renewing it is quite exciting. It's, it's, it's one of the most thrilling things I've ever heard in politics, in global politics in the last 10 years, I would say. Uh, but if you ask me about the ideal social contract, I would suggest, um, borrowing a term from feminism, we all reverse our gaze to Latin America. Uh, up until this point, probably until 2016, uh, when Brexit happened and when Trump came to power, uh, when Europe officially became a mess, uh, we looked up to Europe like rest of the world. And Europe is far larger than the continent itself. Uh, you know, I think we are tired Europeans living in other parts of the world. But now what's really exciting about global politics is happening in Latin America, in Chile, uh, in Argentina, in, in Brazil, uh, and, you know, among them being most exciting Chile. Um, they are literally renewing their social contract and they are doing it uh, very beautifully, I think. So if we want to think about social contract, we have to look at Chile at this point. Um, uh, you know, there has been stumbles, like failures, uh, temporary failures in that process, uh, in the new constitution process. But then what Europe is discussing today, uh, which is deliberative democracy, citizens, assembly, sortition, uh, they have been working on it already uh, and, in, you know, amidst uh, political crisis and despite uh, rising fascism uh, in the Latin American continent. So uh, what they are doing in terms of social contract can be taken as an example, not wholly, maybe, not entirely, uh, but then that is where we have to look if we are looking for a North Star in, in the future of democracy and in terms of renewing the social contract. Thank you very much, Eche. And so if I understand correctly, and you've, you've alluded to this, you know, you, you mentioned deliberative democracy is, is a renewed social contract, so something that that will put the citizens at the very forefront of everything that society is about? Is this, is this the recalibration with at the very core, the individual and the citizen? Yes, uh, exactly. And like, you know, they have been far ahead in Latin America in terms of crisis of neoliberalism and in terms of crisis of democratic, conventional democratic institutions. Um, Chile, uh, especially, 
was the first country that the unleashed neoliberal policies were tried, tested, uh, and it is becoming the first country that uh, is trying to get rid of those uh, policies in the in in a quite you know radical way. One and second, uh, Latin America uh, right wing populism has always been a problem. Uh, but then, while European uh, countries are still trying to fa- find a way out, theoretical way out of rising right-wing populism and authoritarianism, they have already defeated uh, those leaders, such as Bolsonaro. So there is a long list of things that we can learn from them. And uh, by the way, I, of course, count Turkey as part of that group as well. Uh, the elections are very close in Turkey on 14th of May in a few days. Uh, so we're going to see whether Turkey will beat down the 20-year-long Goliath of auto, uh, authoritarian regime. Anyways, so, um, and I think what's happening in Latin America in terms of social contract, you know, the contract between private institutions, uh, government, state, citizens, Uh, civil society um, will give us an idea about how to think about capitalism, uh, which is very central to my thinking, uh, and how to think about uh, the new politics, the new kind of democracy. That is why I I find it very important what's happening in Latin America. Thank you. And I'm so happy that you, you've just mentioned what you did, because my, my next question was, was, was going to be about justice. When, when we met um, in last October in Brussels for the State of Europe, you talked about the crisis of democracy as being inherently closely intertwined with that of capitalism. And you've already started, but could you further elaborate and explain you know, what the, the, the correlation you see between both? So this is specifically where the social contract of liberal democracies is rupturing that connection or broken connection, perhaps? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I wrote How to Lose a Country, this was the this was rather a fresh argument, and since then many people picked up on it, I think. Um when that was 2017, 18, 19, uh, and you know, until then, people did not want to talk about right-wing populism in context of uh neoliberalism and the crisis of neoliberalism. But then my main argument in How to Lose a Country was that right-wing populism and authoritarianism uh, taking over liberal democracies, especially in Europe, is not a temporary passing by fancy of the masses, but it is actually the natural consequence of uh, last decades of unleashed neoliberalism. So today, actually not only in Britain, in the United Kingdom, but also all around Europe, um, countries are still living, more or less, uh, in the cage that was built by Margaret Thatcher and on the other side of the pond, Ronald Reagan. Uh, that was a time when there is no alternative was you know, articulated uh, and coming generations were doomed but by not imagining something beyond capitalism and then on you know there was the decoupling of economy and politics and economy was to be mastered and managed by 
the adults in the room, so to speak, those guys who understand numbers. So uh, there was this, you know, mythology of free market economy and it's, you know, endless, limitless, mighty, it might in, term, in, in terms of managing itself. But what we have seen uh, with the current cost of uh, living crisis uh, with the current massive inequality, uh, market economy does not really uh, do uh, the right thing as it was expected. So, in this con- in this environment of decoupling of politics and economy, I think people lost their masses, lost their faith in democracy, and rightfully so. I mean, like um, if you cannot decide on your destiny, economic destiny, uh, then it is natural that people would perceive elections as, um, you know, a certain theatrics of democracy. So what are they deciding exactly if can they cannot decide on, uh, on, on their economy? So that is why I think uh, cap- uh, crisis of capitalism and crisis of democracy are intertwined. Uh, and on the other hand, like, you know, on a more, let's say, theoretical level, uh, I do believe that the fundamental contract of capitalism and the fundamental contract of democracy are in contradiction. They are they're in conflict because democracy tells us that we are equal and capitalism says that, well, we are not and we will not be. And it also neoliberal policies tells us that this is the natural state of humankind. So democracy seems like a very fragile, um, sort of uh, ambiguous, uh, not clear for whom it's good for kind of, uh, abstraction. So I think democracy, you know, those people who are voting for authoritarian regimes and who are, you know, who become the devotees of right-wing populist leaders uh, are actually voting against democracy. Uh, and they are showing their reaction against democracy. The Their democracy I mean, like the the democracy they have experienced uh, is just this, you know, ballot boxes for every four years. They go to ballot boxes and they know actually that nothing will change in their life. So it is only natural that authoritarianism thrives in this neoliberal uh, environment. The thing is, during 1980s, uh, or let's say b- before that, 1950s, during the Cold War, the main argument was that authoritarianism could only come from uh, socialist countries like USSR uh, and so on. Um, so it took many people too long time uh, to recognize the fact that capitalism can also uh, produce authoritarian leaders and neoliberalism uh, like you know, automatically actually uh, create authoritarian leaders. There's also the infantilization of masses in neoliberal societies, but that's a long story. You know, if anyone is interested, that's in uh, elaborated in how to lose a country. 
Thank you so much. And so many, so many things I want to pick your brain on. You know, you, you've talked about the loss of faith in democracy, and that's something I'm going to get back into. I've, I've actually got a specific question I want to get your thoughts on. Uh, but it's so interesting how the, the, promise of, the promise of equality, which is that of democracy, has been lost to the point where now the ballot box exercise is no longer what we deem our avenue, our conduit to better lives. And that's, that's really the crisis we find ourselves in. And, you know, you've alluded, you've alluded to, to, to this several times in your answer, but you've mentioned in the past how, you know, if we want to save our social contract, we must start to talk about redistribution of wealth. And I've heard you say in the past, which made me smile, and I really want to get back to this. You, you've explained that when you say this, uh, when, when you speak publicly in conferences, half of the room freezes. <laughs> while the other half rejoices ecstatically. And usually those rejoicing are youth. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think this says about our social contract and the state of our democracies? What's this intergenerational thing? Is there something to unpack there? What is it? Tell me. Well, a few things. Uh, <laughs> um, first of all, like, you know, we still live under the shadows of Cold War in our intellectual life. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the mainstream politics, uh, those fears uh, that have been imposed on us during the Cold War are still present. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is that, you know, when I say redistribution of wealth, oh my God, like this is, <laughs> this is the ghoulish, most, you know, terrifying thing you can say, in, especially in certain uh, circles in higher echelons of politics. They are still, uh, you know, suffering from the uh, fear of communism, so to speak. Um, and that fear on its own tells us something. Uh, first of all, we are not free to talk about this. And one of the reasons I'm bringing up a redistribution of wealth is just to, you know, uh, poke some nerves. Uh, especially in intellectual circles and in political circles and to see how they react. Because, okay, you might not agree with redistribution of wealth, but, uh, you know, being unable to bear the discussion uh, tells how pathological uh, our political debate is globally, uh, well, especially, especially in Europe and in the United States. Uh, this is the first thing. And the second thing is, I mean, like, there's a generational difference, of course, because the new generations, um, the new generation did not grow up with the fear of communism as much as the previous generation. So when they hear redistribution of wealth, um, they are not like, you know, discomforted uh, as the previous generation. They just see uh the truth and the right thing to do with the logical thing to do and there's also a fact that the new generation is a poorer generation i mean like they almost have no hope of owning a home in their own labor to start with uh, and you know this is the first generation uh, after 1970s uh, that has no faith uh, in the promises of capitalism, you know, the main promise being if you work hard, you're going to be, you're going to have a prosperous life. That's not happening, and they know that. 
and they're rejecting to work, they're rejecting to be slaves of companies, you know, this strange life that has been imposed on them. And yeah, and they see the inequality. And not only the inequality, they see how the system, how the system system built on greed is demolishing, devastating the, uh, the, the planet. Uh, and their gut feeling, their pure understanding of right and wrong uh, dicta- dictates them to be enthusiastic about such radical solutions, such as redistribution of wealth. So we should trust youth. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not unquestionably. I mean, like it's not like you know you don't have to, you shouldn't question and trust them, but I find them really interesting. Uh, this is my you know re- very recent observation, or I wouldn't say diagnosis, but like yeah, more rather an observation about them. The young generation is um, very much focused on not harming, uh, the, the, the merit of not harming in their politics, in their view of the world, in their daily life, in their personal consumption, ethics, and so on. Um, they're obsessed with this, not harming. This is so different than from previous generation because previous generation um, wanted power. The progress, I'm talking about the progressives. And they didn't think about the harm as much as the new generation does now uh, on their way to power. Um, so I think new generation does not want the power that was asked uh, asked for by the previous generation. They do not want to harm. That makes their political horizon uh, challenging. Let's say they, it's a challenging thing. I'm like, how do you make politics? How do you change the world without harming anything, anybody? So that's a bit of you know a bit of a challenge for them, I think. But I trust them in terms of they are not bound with the fears of the previous generation, and that's very important to me. And they are politicizing in a completely different way, and not through ideologies necessarily, but through very basic ethical um, needs, uh, as, as, uh, you know, as we see in climate action, for instance. So that that purity, although it's a very dangerous word, uh, that purity, uh, that moral compass in their politics uh, is quite trustworthy, I would say, and quite quite thrilling as well. Thank you, Eche. And actually, on you know, speaking of youth, I want to. Um, it, it, it kind of leads me to the next question, and, and it's all it's all happened so organically. The you are developing the concepts of of home and. And, and what it means to have one um, losing one's home, including to fascism, as you've laid out in, in how to lose a country. Um, there's a there's a growing apathy and almost numbness, you know, towards societies or social contract. And we've just alluded to this, you know. There's there's a do no harm, but there's also a a perhaps this isn't my fight kind of things to to be witnessed in society. And I'm not just alluding to to youth. I'm just talking in general here. Um, We've talked about democracy. We've talked about, you know, the loss of promise. We've talked about capitalism. We've talked about redistribution of wealth, uh, the role of youth. How do we engage people to understand the value and the fragility of a well-functioning social contract? And here I'm reading, you know, democracy in the face of inequality, of climate emergency, of war. You've mentioned cost of living crisis. Um, 
is this a question of faith? You were talking about this earlier. Is it a question of, you know, fighting apathy? Um, is the loss of our homes, the erosion of our social contracts, specifically what we need to regain enthusiasm in the ballot box? What do you think? Mm. Well, mm, I'm working and thinking about home lately. Uh, for one year now, I'm thinking about it. I still couldn't really get on to writing, but I'm planning to write a book about that. And maybe there will be other legs of that project. Um, personally, it's an important uh, concept for me because all my life, I, you know, I have been split between road and home and what is home, what is road, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, that's the personal part. But I think the concept of home is very, mm, shall we say, convenient or useful uh, when we are trying to get to the hearts of the people. Uh, and when I say get to the hearts of the people, I mean politics of emotions. Um, until very recently, or maybe still so, uh, progressive politics, progressive, uh, yeah, progressive politics was kind of looking down upon politics of emotions, whereas the right-wing populists, the authoritarian leaders, have mastered politics of emotions, although they are, you know, exploiting uh, the wrong emotions, the, 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 the dangerous emotions, such as fear. Uh, they are doing it so perfectly that no facts uh, that refute their argument can convince their devotees. This is a very important problem, like in, in Hungary, in Turkey, in India, in the United States, in like several other places that, you know, that is now suffering from authoritarian leaders. Um, so as progressives, as, as people who are looking for a better, who are trying to build a better world, uh, renew a social contract, I think we have to find a way uh, to build our new politics of emotions. That's why I wrote together, I mean, like the old subtitle was 10 Choices for a Better World, the new subtitle, A Manifesto Against the Heartless World. Um, because I wanted to tell people that, one, after being subjected to authoritarian regimes or maddening, maddening right-wing populist uh, regimes, uh, you are left with no bearings, neither politically nor morally. And at that point, when you're in ground zero politically and morally, you have to go back to your initial uh, you know, values. What are those values for progressives? So I wanted to lay out those values. So politics of emotions is very important. And you know, through that thinking, uh, I'm, I'm coming to the point that, like, you know, okay, this is the burning question. How do you mobilize the people for democracy, for climate action, and so on and so forth, for, you know, to, to stop, uh, to reverse the economic inequality? That is the burning question. So I say that we also have to use politics of emotions to do this. I don't mean manipulating uh, emotions politically as the right-wing populist leaders do. I mean, going back to our main, you know, fundamental values and making sure that we become uh, as many as we are to change things, to remember who we are, because this is also a confusing, maddening time. You know, our zeitgeist is so bombastic in that sense. 
So we have to clarify our thinking by going back to politics of emotions and our moral values as progressive uh, you know, thinkers, uh, progressive politicians, writers, commentators, opinion makers, and so on. So, yeah, home. Okay, if you say to somebody, uh, you know, if you tell somebody about carbon em carbon emissions uh, and that we're going to lose the planet in about 15 years, this doesn't mean anything. This will not create the reaction that many activists depend on, unfortunately, because this is how human works. You go numb or you go crazy. So, you know, the facts, the incomprehensible facts, like they're so massive that they are incomprehensible. Those incomprehensible facts can only be storified, one. Second, they can only be felt. They cannot be comprehended. So what I propose in general is that if we think about home and if we talk about home and if we make people understand that we are losing home, you know, that is something that might alert them and that might actually uh, motivate them towards a, a positive action, so to speak. So, yeah, uh, home is important on that level, on so many other levels. Uh, but, yeah, we are losing our ultimate home planet. And I think if there is, if we can you know, write the story correctly, if we can tell the story correctly, not write necessarily, I think many more people would be on our side to change the, you know, to reverse the climate crisis, to uh, change the, you know, massive inequality. Mm -hmm. And um, they will be with us even uh, in thinking beyond capitalism. Actually, mm -hmm. that's, that's, you know, renewing the social contract would be renewing the politics of emotions. I think that's that's so powerful. You know, how we can storify and feel what we're going through as opposed to being told you're gonna lose your planet, you're gonna lose your home. You know, this is you know, it's the it's the the, the freeze or flight reaction. It's like we're gonna do one or the other, but neither are gonna be constructive. Let us feel, let let us be told what it means on a deep personal level, and then we can renew. The politics of emotions, the social contract. You, you, you've laid it out very inspirationally. Um, uh, we can even look at a different uh, level uh, to understand how it actually uh, is affected to think like that. When you look at last 10 years of last decade of politics, global politics in the West, actually, the politics was shaped by the concept of home. Right-wing populists told us that we are losing our home to strangers and they terrified people by this loss of home. And that is why, actually, uh, they were supported so massively. Or they promised us to make our homes great again, as in Trump's case or in any other case. So home uh, reaches, uh, the word home reaches to people's hearts when it's pronounced. So how can we use this differently, in opposite, rather, uh, to authoritarian regimes. So, yeah, uh, I think home is a great place to start, especially in, uh, you know, social con renewing the social contract because many Europeans, and, I, you know, I know this <laughs> personally, many Europeans do not feel the current Europe as their home because, you know, they see the refugees being pushed to see, um, they see, I don't know, several other things that is 
that are inhumane and they are looking around and they see this is not my home anymore. Hmm. Yeah, I think home is, is something relevant and it will be relevant to people. And, and you've said it's, you know, home is, is where to start. Mm -hmm. Actually, this is, this is incredibly fascinating, but I, I, I want to ask you, when, when, when May, we're a couple of days away from, from the elections, uh, the Turkish elections, um, while I think we can assume what your hopes are and what your faith is with regards to the elections, uh, what are your expectations and what are you, what are you planning on, on doing or what are, you know, a couple of thoughts maybe? Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, in this case, unfortunately, it's impossible for me to be objective. I mean, like I, uh, you know, I lost several things because of this regime. Many people lost far more, uh, you know, important things such as their lives, their children, and their home, and their home. Uh, so I cannot be objective and do, you know, make a, you know, cold-blooded evaluation. I really want this regime be gone. That's it. I mean, like, it's not going to be amazing right after the election. But as one Brazilian uh, social media user said after Lula's election, it will close doors of the hell. We know that it won't open the doors to heaven, but it definitely will close the doors of hell. So I'm looking forward to that closing doors of the hell that we have been living for the last 20 years. Thank you, Eche. I want us to part on a positive note. Um, and we've alluded to faith here. So I want to ask you, you are a believer of faith in all kind, in humankind, a secular type of faith. I've heard you say, what, give, what gives you faith for the future? We've alluded to youth, but you know, is there something else? Are there movements, trends, examples that you find just inspiring or promising in rebuilding our social contract? Oh, faith, you know, <laughs> it is, it's a, it's a, it's a word that has religious, you know, sound. I know that. And maybe it's not all that bad. Yes, I am talking about secular faith. I'm talking about faith in humankind. Uh, but still, we can kind of copy things from the religious faith. Uh, so I'm thinking, like, you know, why did they believe in Jesus? because Jesus created miracles. So in order to make people believe in humankind, in politics again, in democracy again, we have to create some miracles as well. Uh, and what is most inspiring, uh, or what is, most, what is the closest thing to miracle, uh, was the earthquake in Turkey. The earthquake was devastating. It was like two times Austria, uh, or I don't know, it was massive. And, you know, I don't know, we don't know how many people died because the, the numbers are not correct. However, right on that spot, when everything was lost, when, you know, when, when cities were like dystopian film sets, there were a few people who started doing incredible work of solidarity and, you know, relief And from that small group of people, a new political understanding was born. A new political uh, party was born. Uh, and they, when people, when the other people, so that you know they are doing the right thing, these people are doing the right thing, despite everything. And when government that they believed in for the last 20 years 
was not doing anything, there was a big change of perception. And I'm hoping that we're going to see uh, the consequences of that perception during the elections. Uh, so the miracle was during a disaster, a small group of people changed the perception of a country, I mean, the, the understanding of a country's understanding of politics. Uh, but more that even more than that, a country's understanding of right and wrong, beautiful and ugly. Um, so that was America. That was the most recent incident that made me believe in humankind and humans and in politics as well. I think we need more of these, not disasters necessarily, but on the spot miracles that prove to the rest of the world, that humans are not selfish, self-centered bastards, as neoliberalism wants us to believe. We are good, we are selfless, and we want to sacrifice ourselves for the good of our kind. Uh, and I think this, you know, this kind of understanding, this kind of faith, uh, did not have m enough time to develop itself. But I know that it will, because very soon in politics, we will be lacking the bearings, the institutions, the conventional, uh, you know, political mechanisms. And then on, we will have to renew our faith in humankind. And I am absolutely sure that we will. Thank you so much, Eche, for closing these, these podcasts on such uh, uplifting and positive words. It was truly delightful to have you with us today. I look forward to being in contact to see what you are going to be putting out to the world. Um, <laughs> I look forward to reading you, to hearing you. Um, as a reminder, Eche's birthday is on the 22nd of July, <laughs> and it will be the day that her first ever libretto will be performed uh, in Amsterdam. So do absolutely look it up. I want to thank you so much, Eche, and I want to... Thank you, Tom. It was a delight. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I, I, this was the Frankly Speaking podcast, the podcast on European and world affairs. It was our first ever episode on the renewed social contract, and we are delighted and blessed that it was with you, Eche Temel Kuran. Thank you very much, and we look forward to speaking very soon again. Yes, thank you. We'll leave it there for today. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to the Frankly Speaking Podcast newsletter or following us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or a rating as it truly helps us reach more curious minds like yours. And don't forget to tune in again this time next week. <laughs>